One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. Hello, this is Owen Bennett-Jones and you've downloaded the NewsHour Extra podcast and this week we're looking at water. It's been used as a weapon of war for centuries, but could its scarcity become a cause of conflict too? Many think that's already happening. Over the next hour, we'll examine that question, but also in the second half of the programme, look for solutions to these problems. Our panel today, Peter Glick. He's head of the Pacific Institute and runs the Water Conflict Database. Fred Pierce, the author of When the Rivers Run Dry. He's here in London. Shafiqul Islam. Professor of Water Diplomacy at Tufts University, and Sandra Postel, Head of the Global Water Policy Project. She's come through from New Mexico, so we've got people all over the place. And just to start this off, if you can just give us an indication of how serious you think the problems are of water around the world. We'll obviously get into much more detail later, but as a very general opening remark, Sandra Postel, why don't you start? Well, the problems of water are very serious and growing more serious. Um, Obviously, we have a finite supply, growing population, growing economies, and um, we're starting to see stresses of various kinds all around the world. You know, there's an interconnected set of threats, I think, that we can point to that I particularly worry about in terms of relationships between water and food and social stability and political stability. And we're beginning to see that interconnection, you know, unravel in places. And so I think it's very serious. And we can look at what's happening with groundwater, for example, where we look at the major, major food producing regions, you know, the North Plain of China, northwestern India, Pakistan, the western United States, all of which are exhibiting problems of depletion, heavy depletion of of groundwater. So already we see about 10% of our global food supply produced by the unsustainable use of groundwater. And that's obviously not something that can continue. We can look at rivers running dry. And so these physical signs of stress, you know, show us that we have very real problems already. And then, of course, with you know, the climate change impacts on top of those, we expect this to get quite a bit worse. And so it's that sort of constellation of interconnected threats that I that I worry about. And I think even our, our military is beginning to worry about. You know, the military now calls climate change a threat multiplier, meaning that these threats already exist and they're being multiplied by by the impacts we expect to see from climate change. Okay, let's just uh, get an opening remark too from Shafiqul Islam. I mean, yeah, we're we're hearing the population's going up, which is clearly uh, an issue because the, you know, there's only a, a, a set amount of water, as it were. But is, is it a problem that the water's in the wrong places, really? So let me start by saying that whenever there is a talk about this water crisis, we use terms like water stress, water scarcity, water excess, uh, water risk, and these are often used interchangeably. And as Sandra was pointing out very rightly, is that these problems are interconnected and they could be threat multiplier. But how how so? So the difficulty is that water is 70 percent of our planet, yet over a billion people have either limited or no access to water. Every year, water kills more people than all other forms of violence combined, including war. Every eight second, one child dies because of inadequate access to water, sanitation and hygiene. So these are sobering, but not new statistics. In 2010, UN proclaimed that the world met the Millennium Goals of having the proportion of people without access to improved source of water. Now, if you take this metric 
we had a success story to celebrate, but we may have celebrated too soon. Who are these people really who doesn't have access to water? What is the difference between access and improved access to water? And looking at these seven, six, eight million people without access to water, 83% of these people live in rural areas. We know across the world, about a billion people lives in urban slums and they don't have access to water. So in that sense, we are not even sure really how we define these global metrics. Unless we are sure really what we are measuring and why, that's rethinking is extremely important to even define what the global risk for water is. OK, that's great. Better measurement. Peter Glick, what's your opening comment? Well, without a doubt, we have a very wide range of water problems around the world, and, and the previous commenters have raised many of them. Uh, water is connected to everything we care about. Uh, there are places where there's too much water. There are places where there's not enough for even for basic human needs. And part of the problem is that these challenges associated with water, contamination, ecosystem destruction, political conflict, uh, human health problems, the challenge is that these are increasingly crossing over into the political arena. They're increasingly causing political tensions, political violence. Uh, we're seeing conflicts over water, even, ironically enough, in places where we used to think there was plenty of water. There's what I would describe as peak water. We're absolutely running into limits on what we're able to do with the water resources we have. Uh, and we've not thought adequately about how to solve those problems. We'll talk to you about conflict in particular in just a few moments' time. Finally, to Fred Pierce. Yeah, we do. We manage water just so badly, and we're seeing the consequences of this with major rivers like the Yellow River and the Indus and the Nile and the Columbia and many other rivers running dry at least for part of the year in ways that they wouldn't naturally. We manage dams really badly. I've just seen a report that says that we've spent $2 trillion on large dams around the world in the last 50 years or so, and they have increased water scarcity for more people than they've helped. It's a question of who grabs the water, I guess. Our green revolution crops, which the high-yield crops that we introduced in 40 or 50 years ago, which have fed the world, a world whose population has doubled, a brilliant success, you would say, for agriculture. But those crops, are, while they produce more tonnes of wheat or whatever per acre, are water inefficient. So our problem is to find, the, I guess, the flip side, the good side, is that we could do so much better, but we really are messing up water right now. Sounds like there's a lot of long-term problems, which politics quite often finds quite difficult to deal with. Yes, indeed. Yeah. OK, well, let, let's go a, a little more specifically into a, a particular place, then we'll get you all to comment on what we're going to hear now from Shazeb Jilani who is based in Karachi, a journalist there, and familiar with what's happening, just as an example of what's going on, really, to one of the world's great rivers, the Indus. And uh, he told me, first of all, how important the Indus is for Pakistan. The river Indus is uh, the backbone of Pakistan's agriculture. It originates high in the Himalayas on the Tibetan plateau and then flows south about 3,000 kilometres before reaching the Arabian Sea. And uh, along the way, it irrigates the fertile land of Punjab province, in Sindh province. And in the last uh, few decades, that water has been shrinking because of a number of uh, irrigation projects, uh, dams that have been built upstream. And as a result, the Indus Delta is dying a slow death. And the coastal communities here in Sindh province are the biggest affectees of this. 
So you're saying that the water that comes down from the Himalayas, it's all being used? Much of it is being used during most of the year. It's only when the floods happen, when the delta gets too much water and communities are flooded. But most of the year, about 10 months uh, in a year, the water doesn't reach the delta. And as a result, what we've been witnessing in the last couple of decades is sea intrusion. The salt water is encroaching upon communities, villages, and it is destroying entire ecosystems uh, in the delta. Now, then, you've been talking to some farmers. Whereabouts on the Indus were they? These are the farmers we spoke to in Sindh province, and they are effectively at the receiving end of all of this. They do not get the water they require to irrigate their fields. And some of this has to do with conflict, with you know big farmers stealing water because they can, they are in the government, and small farmers at tail end of canals and water courses essentially sitting there on barren land. We don't even have water to drink. It doesn't reach us. The land has become barren and dry. They blame Punjab for taking all the water. But what about the water in Sindh? Where does that go? Why do the poor not get any of it? When the people who are meant to catch the thieves are doing the stealing themselves, how do we solve the problem? As long as the politicians continue to misuse their powers, bad governance will continue and this won't be fixed. Some farmers from Sindh, they're just describing how difficult it is for them. So as you look ahead, Shahzeb, is anyone working on solutions for any of this? Well, you know, we've been hearing about the fact that Pakistan is one of the most water-stressed countries. Water is a huge challenge. It's depleting. Pakistan's population is growing. But there doesn't seem to be a clear water policy at a national level or even at provincial level. And what we are seeing is those who are powerful still manage to get water by hook or crook. And those who are weak and powerless, their lives are becoming more and more difficult. And that's uh, Shahzeb Jilani in Karachi, just describing what's going on in Pakistan. But uh, Shafiqul Islam, you're very familiar with Bangladesh, where you started your life. And presumably, you know, we could have done a similar interview there, right? Yes, you could. I think, and I think even the situation is very similar. If you think about now the Ganges, uh, Ganges essentially is between, let's say, India and Bangladesh. Here we are looking at Punjab and Sindh. Punjab is upstream, Sindh is downstream. So Punjab is using most of the water, Sindh is not getting enough water. So yes, I think just looking at the quantity perspective, that could be an issue. But at the same time, if you look at a basin scale, we need to think about this problem a little bit differently. In the sense that this idea that yeah, there will be asymmetry between riparian nations, there will be asymmetry of power, the powerful will try to take advantage of the more vulnerable ones. This is human history. This has not changed in the last 3,000 years. So what we need to figure out really is, is there a way to create more water? Or is there a way to basically manage water more effectively? Now, if you look at the Indus irrigation project is one of the largest irrigation projects in the world. So they have essentially hit the limit of what can be used from Indus in terms of the quantity of water. So if you look at what is happening in Sindh, there is a lot of saltwater intuition. There is also water logging from the irrigation that is going on. So it is not really that clean a problem that whether we should blame Punjab or we should blame the climate change. It is a mixture of all of these 
question. Sure. Then the, yeah, I mean, the issue there would be yeah. is to how to come up with creative options, meaning that what are the creative options that both Punjab and Sindh can work with to come up with a solution that is feasible given the capacity of the system and the constraints of the system. Now, we're going to try and do that in the, in the second half of the programme. We're discussing what solutions are out there and trying to work out what can be done. But I do uh, take your point that, that that is probably the way out of this. But Fred Pierce, can you just help us understand a bit more about the scale of the, the problem before we get on to the solutions? Because you, you have a remarkable uh, story uh, about how much water it takes to make a cup of coffee. It takes tonnes of water to do. I worked out that to put coffee in my mug in the morning, to put sugar in my, uh, in my mug, to produce my uh, slice of toast, to just get me through the basics of the day, maybe a hamburger later in the day, requires 100 times my own weight in water every day. Now, this is not water that I'm drinking. Obviously, it's not water that I'm flushing down the toilet. These are small parts of the water that we individually use. The real water that we use is the water that's needed to grow our crops, grow the cotton for the clothes that we wear, grow the feed for the animals that we eat or the dairy products that we eat. Just fantastic amounts of water that we... And there are 7 billion of us. Yes, and just reading for this programme, one thing I hadn't really appreciated is that when you import food, you're almost importing water because you're, you're importing all the water that went into making that food. Economists have a phrase for that. They talk about virtual water. Uh-huh. And yes, in, sitting here in the UK, about half the water needed to grow the things that we rely on is imported. So we are, if you like creating water problems around the world by the nature of our trade. But, but Sandra Pesto, can you just uh, sort of help me understand one thing? It seems to me that from my schoolboy geography textbook, you know, there's water comes down, it evaporates and goes into clouds and comes down again. So I mean, it's not like it's being drained off to Mars or anything. There is the same amount of water in, I don't know, the atmosphere on Earth. So what's the problem? Well, water is not well distributed to, you know, compared with our demands for it. And so we have a much of irrigated agriculture, for example, which is by far and away the biggest consumer of water in the world, takes place where it's sunny, where you have less rain. That's where we have the highest yields. And so, you know, places like China, North Plain of China, you know, the drier parts of India, the Central Valley of California, in fact, the Western U.S. generally produces high volumes of food using that sunshine. But we have to get water to those crops in order for them to grow. And so there's that mismatch between where water is naturally available and where it's best to grow crops. And this goes back to the beginning of human civilization, where we had, you know, the beginnings of irrigated agriculture in Sumeria, what is now southern Iraq. Yeah, but I mean, it, you, you'll put me straight, I'm sure. But if that water goes into the ground to make those crops in, let's say, California, and goes into mm-hmm. the ground, it can be reused, right? Well, a couple things here. So think about that. We were, let's say we're irrigating a crop in California. So the roots are bringing up that water from the soil. They're transpiring it through their, in the process of photosynthesis, through their, the openings in their leaves. And that transpiration goes back to the atmosphere where it may form clouds and rain again, maybe not in the same location, or it may not. You know, we're seeing an increased evaporative demand in the atmosphere as the atmosphere warms. And so we're going to see increased rates of evaporation and transpiration, which again, crops need to grow, right? There's a direct correlation between yield and transpiration rate. And so that water is not leaving the earth, but it's not available for reuse right then and there in that place. Where you you need it. 
Yeah. Okay. Where where we need it, and okay. so I think that's the key. And and again, irrigation also results in uh, a lot of runoff. You know, and not all that water is being used by the crop. And so that water may may or may not recharge groundwater. It may not be used again. And so, again, it gets back to management, you know, how we're managing this water that we're using. I'll go to Peter Glick in just a moment, but Fred wants to say something. Yeah, I mean, we see this when rivers literally run dry. We just simply don't have the water in the places that we need it. The other thing we're doing when we run out of water in the rivers is we are starting to pump out underground water, much of which, some is replaced by the rain, but much of which is not. So we are now mining water that's been underground for hundreds, even thousands of years. And that is a real drain on absolute amount of water that we have available for farmers on the planet. In a usable form. Let's go to Peter Glick, because I want to move this on to conflict. And you've got this fascinating study of how water leads to conflict. And I mean, I, you know, I, I guess we can all imagine if two groups of people are fighting over a desert, you know, a well in the desert, you know, then clearly that would be a water conflict. But when you look at these bigger global conflicts that we see today, do you think water's part of it? I think without a doubt, we're seeing an increase in conflicts over water resources. Uh, As you mentioned, we maintain something called the water conflict chronology. It's a, for students of history, it's a database going back literally thousands of years of conflicts over water from ancient Mesopotamia, the, the Tigris and the Euphrates River, up until modern times, ironically enough, and also the Tigris and the Euphrates River uh, with Iraq and Syria. Uh, But there are growing conflicts over water worldwide, and they take many different forms. Sometimes it's a we-want-your-water kind of conflict, a conflict over water scarcity and allocation. Sometimes it takes the form of the use of water as a weapon, where water is released or held back from being released in a conflict that starts for other reasons. Sometimes it takes the form of attacks on water systems, attacks on dams, attacks on water infrastructure. Again, sadly enough that we've seen over and over again in recent years in Syria and Iraq and Yemen, where there's a conflict going on and the civil population is suffering because the military attacks water systems and uses it as a weapon. I think we're going to see more and more of this as tensions rise over water, as populations grow and demands for water uh, grow. Your piece a minute ago mentioned the the Indus River. The Indus is a classic example. Uh, It's one of the world's great rivers. We have populations growing in Pakistan and India. There's tensions over how that limited water resources are used. Uh, There's a political treaty shared between India and Pakistan over that river. But as populations grow, as demands grow, we're seeing more and more tensions over these shared rivers. Tensions, okay. But stripping out the weapon of war, which I think we can all understand if a a dam is released on a population or a town or something, then that's a weapon of war. Or even just denying people water is a weapon of war. But as a cause of conflict, can you give us an example, (laughs) not where it might happen or where tensions are high, but where it's actually happened that water... Sure. Has caused a war. You know, wars are caused for lots of reasons. The way to think about this is the growing influence of water resources and, I would add, climate change on conflict. And a really good example, unfortunately, is the current conflict in Syria. The Syrian civil war was not caused by water. It was not caused by any single thing. It's a historical conflict. It's an ethnic and religious and ideological conflict. 
But before the civil war in, in Syria started, a very severe drought struck the eastern Mediterranean, a drought that scientists say was influenced and worsened by climate change. That drought led to serious agricultural disruptions, which led to population migrations to the cities in Syria and economic tensions that contributed, didn't cause, but contributed to that conflict in Syria. And we're going to see more and more examples where these kind of influences cause conflict. I mean, I've got to be honest, that sounds quite a loose connection to me. You know, I have read that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is more clearly about water. Would you say that's right? Fred Pierce, just you come in on that, then we'll hear from Peter. Uh, A lot of people say that the the Six-Day War was uh, principally about water. It began, uh, Israel had diverted a lot of water from the River Jordan, and then Syria began to make a diversion. What Mm. you can say is that before the war, Israel controlled very little of the River Jordan, the, the critical surface water resource in the region, and by the end of that war, it controlled most of it. So there's an argument about it, but many people say water was key to the reason why people went to war in 1967. Peter Glick. Uh, Look, I've worked on this issue for a long time. Uh, Absolutely, there is a connection between water and conflict. Mm -hmm. I would just be a little cautious about trying to find a single causal factor for any given conflict. The the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the, the 67 war, the subsequent wars, certainly water was a component, but those are conflicts that are ideological, they're religious, they're historical. The, the way to think about this is water is a piece of this growing risk of conflict, and we've got to figure out a way to take water out of that equation. That's the challenge here. Sandra Postel, what do you, what do you make of these connections between water and the causes of conflict? Well, I pretty much agree with what our commentator, other commentators have said. You know, I, I increasingly worry about, you know, this constellation of threats where water is at the center of it, you know. And so not just Syria. I agree with Peter that water played a role in the, the unrest and, and war we're now seeing in Syria. Going back to that drought, um, many attribute, analysts attribute, you know, water scarcity and, and drought as part of the Arab Spring that has disrupted the political and governance issues in in North Africa. Uh, We were talking about the Indus. Um, Studies have shown that, you know, the challenges of water in the Indus have led to out-migrations to Karachi, where there's difficulties with employment already. So you have, you know, cadres of young people without job prospects. And so the the prospect of of increased uh, recruitment for terrorist activities is there, and that has been analyzed and shown. So I think we do need to understand these connections and where we can, you know, provide, you know, remove water as one of those elements, because that is what we we can focus on. But again, you know, water is an increasing factor in these tensions and will continue to be so. No question about it. Just to remind you, you're listening to a podcast edition of NewsHour Extra from the BBC World Service. Each week we tackle a different topic and you can download the programme every Friday. So do subscribe and you'll never miss an edition one hour of discussion on a single topic every week. And if you enjoy NewsHour Extra, you may also like some of the other BBC World Service podcasts. For example, the Global News Podcast. It brings you the very best of our BBC World Service coverage from our correspondents around the world. So that's the biggest news stories, detailed analysis, all on the Global News Podcast. You're listening to News Hour Extra from the BBC World Service with Owen Bennett-Jones. And we're joined today by Peter Glick, head of the Pacific Institute and uh, head of the Water Conflict Database also in California. Fred Pierce, author of When the Rivers Run Dry. Shafiqul Islam of Tufts University. And Sandra Postel of the Global Water Policy 
project. Now, I think uh, we can hear from California now where there have been many, many problems with water shortages in recent years. But we're going to try and look ahead to solutions. And we've got Felicia Marcus, who's head of the Water Resources Control Board for California, which I imagine, uh, Felicia Marcus, is an extremely stressful job. (laughs) Well, it has been. It wasn't as stressful as people who were out of water, though. Yes, well, that's a fair point. But nonetheless, uh, the the political demands on you must be quite horrendous. Uh, Can you just talk to us about what you have done in California We understand there's a big problem there. So what have you done to try and solve it? We've sort of taken an all-of-the-above approach because we've been on that path, understanding that climate change is going to make our whole system more rocky and more challenging. And the drought was a a wake-up call as to how bad that can be. And so it's a combination of things with conservation and efficiency, first and foremost, because it's the cheapest, fastest, best water you can uh, you can save. But we've also gone to town on promoting the use of recycled water. Uh, cities have grand plans for stormwater capture and getting it into their groundwater basins if they have them. So we're looking at storage of all kinds above and below ground and looking at all of the suite of tools that can get you where you need to go, even desal in the appropriate circumstances, particularly where folks don't have a groundwater basin to put recycled water and stormwater into. But conservation is top of the charts because that's where all of the low-hanging fruit is. Right. We're going to talk about desalination later. So just on demand, uh, I I remember driving through California a couple of years ago, and there seemed to be quite an absurd number of almond trees, which, as I understand it, uh, use rather a lot of water. So, I mean, are you able to say to a farmer, yeah, just stop doing that? No, in the agricultural context, we actually have, it's much more complicated because we have a a system of water rights above and below ground that's very complicated and very uh, user-specific. In the surface water arena, it's a seniority-based system, which much of the Western states have. And uh, what ends up happening is that, you know, if you have more junior water rights, you expect to not get water in certain years or buy it from more senior water rights holders. In other cases, and true with a lot of the almond orchards, they are over groundwater basins that have not been managed as much as they will be in the next few years. And you do it at your own peril. But we don't pick and choose what crops a farmer can Right. Well, this water rights system sounds a pretty crazy this, system this is, this, to me that farmers is, can... This uh, is Fred Pierce, just to say. Excuse yeah. me, yes. Uh, that farmers can take as much water as they want to pump up from beneath their land. It doesn't sound like a very equitable or fair or certainly sensible way of managing water. I wonder how you cope with it in California. Well, that's why groundwater legislation got passed in 2014. It took 100 years (laughs) to get groundwater management framework. But basically, I think because of the drought and because of the proliferation of new plantings of permanent crops going in, where the person with the largest pump would win and potentially dewater, and in, in some cases dewater their neighbors, there was a call for some sort of a framework. And that's why we now have one, which is going into effect over this year and the coming few years. I think you finally had a critical mass of opinion, a critical mass in the legislature that agreed with that statement that you had. And we're now working hard on getting it implemented at the local level. I mean, it's always been the case that under our groundwater law, it's a what they call a correlative right among overlying landowners. And in order to deal with allegations that one guy was overpumping another guy's 
farm, you had to go to court, which was a laborious and expensive process that could take 10, 20, 30 years. Uh, Much of our urban areas are adjudicated because they could afford to do that. Uh, Most farmers can't afford to do that. That's why finally there was support for legislation so that people could come up with a way to allocate it fairly amongst themselves. With your permission, Felicity Marcus, can I invite Peter Glick, who lives in California, to see if he has a question for you, particularly about solutions, Peter? Oh, I think Felicia has described it extremely well. I would just note that on the groundwater problem, a substantial amount of our agricultural production in California and worldwide comes from unsustainable groundwater use. And that's okay in the short run, but eventually that runs out. It gets too expensive to pump. uh, It's too deep. The water quality deteriorates. We're going to have to figure out how to bring these resources back into balance much faster. And there's going to be some economic disruption for some in in the, in mm-hmm. the near term, I would argue. Felicity Marcus, can I ask you about consumers? Because there are an awful lot of lawns in California which look uh, rather green, you know, which I presume relies, relies on sprinklers all night. Does that get you down? Yes. <laughs> I, I, I'll say that what we targeted during the worst of the drought was precisely the lawn. And while you'll see more green ones this year because we had a wet winter, uh, you certainly saw a mass of brown lawns uh, during the course of the drought, particularly once we went with mandatory urban conservation regulations, which, although not specifying the lawn, were calculated and targeted towards the lawn to say, if we were going to have a drought that was going to last like Australia's millennial drought or even shorter, certainly longer than the three or four years that uh, we've grown accustomed to in the last unusually wet hundred or so years, uh, the last thing that folks would have wanted is to have wasted that precious resource on turning their lawns a shade of green in July that should only appear in Scotland. Um, so <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, we we targeted lawns and the public stepped up big time. Last question to you, Felicia so, Marcus. Do you know what percentage of the water in California was used for these lawns? It's an interesting question. If you think about the fact that of the developed water in California, meaning the water that we take out of the ecosystem, it's about 10% is urban. And of that 10%, an average of 50% or more is used on outdoor ornamental landscaping, then probably somewhere between uh, 4 and 5% as a gross guess would be how yeah. much we spend on urban lawns. That's quite a lot. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Much appreciated. Uh, someone was trying to get in. Was that you, Peter or Shafikul? We imported many wonderful things from the United Kingdom. Uh, but in the Western U.S., green lawns was not a great idea. Okay. Uh, as Felicia <laughs> yeah. Marcus noted, we, we have a very arid climate. A very substantial amount of our urban water use goes to outdoor lawns. And in, in a sense, the good news is that as water gets shorter, as we tensions grow over water, as the demand increases, that is an area where we can cut back. I have no lawn in my house. I have a beautiful garden. It's very water efficient, but there's zero lawn, and my water use has gone down tremendously. And that, that I think, is an indication of the direction we need to move in the Western U.S. Shafiqul Islam. So if you think about now in Bangladesh, really, when there is a drought situation, can I really provide water in the dry season for access to people or to the ecosystems. Now, if I want to provide water in slums in Karachi, is it really access to water or is it really they're paying exorbitant price of water from the water mafias? So these questions need to be understood at that level and then figure out really 
for that particular contest, what is the solution that is feasible given the system that I live in, given the capacity of the system and the constraint for the system. To look for a global solution for a problem that is local is almost a, basically we're looking for a silver bullet that does not exist. So I take your point. So Sandra Pastel, you know, if I ran through recycling canals, demand reduction, you know, get those sprinklers off the lawns, uh, urban design and these various things, it, it's going to differ in different places. That's what we're hearing. It's going to differ in different places, but I, I'd like to bring us up a level in, as we think about solutions and just make the point that we have an opportunity to you know, really fundamentally change how we relate to the water cycle. And we've been talking about the interconnectedness of water, not only within ecosystems, but to our social and political and, and systems. And you know, I've got a book coming out this fall that makes the case that if we actively work to repair and replenish the water cycle, we can begin to remove water as a stressor, as a threat, and begin to really establish more water security in agriculture, in cities, and in our economies. And we look, for example, let me just give a, a couple of quick examples of this. I for, have worked on water for a long time, but personally, I have not paid enough attention to the importance of the soil as a reservoir of water. At any moment in time, soils contain about eight times more water than all the rivers on Earth combined. And yet we don't really manage the soil as a water reservoir. Science has shown us we can do a much better job of capturing, storing water in the soil by changing the way we grow crops, by changing the way we raise livestock. And so just thinking about crops, we know from good science that the combination of cover cropping and no-till agriculture results in much more water stored in the soil, which means we're much more resilient to the next drought. We've seen this. Farmers have shown us this. We can actively recharge groundwater that's being depleted. We're beginning to see areas that are doing this, including parts of California. We can begin to let rivers have their floodplains back again. We're seeing increased flood damage as a result of levees that are channelizing rivers and raising their height, moving them faster, and causing downstream flooding that could greatly be reduced by giving rivers the opportunity to flood naturally on their floodplains in strategic locations again. We can begin to redesign cities to act more like sponges, you know, restoring the urban water cycle rather than having flooded streets uh, bringing pollution and, and floodwaters out to our creeks and bays. And so these are actions we can take that we know can begin to solve these problems. And the, the challenge we have is scaling them up. You know, I can point to good examples from various parts of the world in all these areas that will improve the way water moves through the landscape. And yet our policies and, and incentives don't encourage sufficiently that scaling up. Now, as, as an outsider to this topic, as it were, unlike you, I'm interested that we've only had a couple of quite brief references to desalination. And yet in Saudi Arabia, as we will hear, it provides water for tens of millions of people. I mean, it seems to be an extremely effective solution. So let's hear about it. Nizar Kamouri is general manager of Sour Co. It's the biggest uh, water desalination plant in Saudi Arabia. And uh, I'll be very glad to hear all your comments and what he says in a moment. But first of all, from him, how many people in Saudi use desalinated water? Saudi Arabia has 30 million people. And for domestic uses and industries, over 70% of the demand comes from desalinated water. Now then, I, I think I'm right in saying desalination uses a lot of electricity. So is that all coming from oil? Absolutely, absolutely. Desalination is, uh, probably consumes up to 
of the Saudi national output of oil. So uh, desalination is a big, uh, how can I say, fossil fuel hungry, and it deprives the country from uh, much needed um, income from exporting oil. And when the desalination has occurred, you, you must end up with an awful lot of salt. So does the salt go back in the sea? Yes. Uh, usually, if you, it depends on the technology you use. If you use reverse osmosis, you can desalinate at best 40% of every cubic meter of seawater. So 60% of the water goes back to the sea or to the ocean or to the gulf. Much, much uh, saltier. And what does that do to the local fish? In reality, uh, the brine is not damaging the environment like most people think because it's a pure water. This water has been filtered, it's been subjected to a lot of uh, treatment. So the, the, the brine that goes back to the sea does not really kill fish. It might affect, to a certain extent, the, the coral formations, it might lead to some, a, a, a bleaching of the coral. But if the company that and the designers and the engineers who are designing these, what we call outfall into the sea, they study well the currents and the depth of the area they're uh, dumping the brine into, they can substantially reduce the, the, the environmental effect, the negative environmental effect of brine. And as you look at the world and the issue of water shortage, do you, because there's a lot of talk of, you know, reducing demand and recycling and urban design and all sorts of things, do you think desalination is the answer? Well, whether we like it or not, the club of what we call the desalters, the desalting nation, is getting bigger every year. A few years ago, Spain joined the, 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 the club. Cyprus joined the club. In America, after so many years of... Uh, objections and uh, uh, NGOs lobbying against desalination. If you see, there are over uh, 100 desalination plants uh, on the drawing boards in America alone. Uh, So yes, the future, it will not be the only source of extra water, but it will be definitely one of the uh, alternative sources of water. And that was Niza Komori there. So let's discuss desalination and see what you all think about it. Perhaps I could start with you, Fred Pierce, here in London. He says that it's a growing trend. It's the human solution, isn't it? When we face food shortages, you know, people talked about that 20, 30 years ago. We grew more food. Now we're water shortages. Get more water. It's very expensive and it uses a lot of energy. And if you're getting your energy from fossil fuels, then you're creating a whole series of other problems. It's also only useful for coastal areas, perhaps urban areas. There's certainly no use for agriculture. It's far too expensive, and agriculture is much the biggest user of water that we have. So it has niche places, I guess. It's also a useful backup. We have a, not many people know this in Britain, but we have a desalination plant on the Thames Estuary, which sits there. It doesn't get used. In fact, I'm not sure that it's ever been used, but it was an alternative to constructing a new large dam on the Thames, a cheaper option just for that one year in 100 or one year in 50 when we might need it during a bad drought. So there is a role, I think, for desalination, but not for mainstream supply and certainly not for agriculture. But Peter Glick, it is mainstream supply in, in Saudi. 
Okay, so Saudi is an extreme example. I think Fred described it very well. People love technical solutions. They love to think there's one answer to our problems and often look to technology. And in the water area, it's desalination. And we know that desalination works. We can take salt out of seawater. But as Fred mentioned, it's extraordinarily expensive. And as Felicia Marcus mentioned from the state board in California, conservation and efficiency and water recycling and smart groundwater management and stormwater are all smarter and cheaper and faster at the moment than desalination. In Saudi Arabia, that's such an extreme case. It's such an arid, water-short area and, ironically enough, energy-rich that they have turned to desalination, and that's completely understandable. And there will be more desalination as a piece of the solution in places around the world, but it is not the first choice any of us should be looking to when there are cheaper, faster options. Yeah, it it is a truly stunning figure he gave that 25% of Saudi oil goes into making this water. But I think there is talk of uh, nuclear plants to deliver the energy required to desalinate there. Shafiqul Islam, how do you see it? We need to look at water as a flexible resource. Diesel is one way to create that flexibility. There are many, many other ways. To give you an example from Boston, in Boston, really, at least 30 years ago, we used to use at least three times more water than we use right now. How did that happen? That happened in many different ways. We have created very efficient flushing system. We have put pricing control. We have developed awareness. So there are many ways to create flexibility in water. In water diplomacy, what we promote really, this idea of looking at water as a fixed resource is the problem. We need to look at water as a flexible resource. In Saudi, maybe diesel is a good option. It may not be a very good option for Boston or Bangladesh. Really. So we need to figure out really in what place, what system level capacities exist so that I can create flexibility in water. That could be through technology, that could be through policy, that could be through economic instruments, that could be through developing public awareness. So there are many ways to address these problems. And our this predominant focus really on trying to find a very quick fix is going to lead to more problems. Yeah, but Sandra Postel, isn't it the case that politicians like quick fixes for, you know, for good reason, which is that the electorate doesn't want to, you know, do some of the things that would be involved in these other solutions. And, and they just love to see more water coming down the road, which they can use as much as they like of, isn't it? Well, certainly that's true. I mean, it's nice to stand in front of a shiny new desalination plant and as a politician and say, we, ma- we made right. this happen. It's not as, you know, it's not as great to stand in front of a low flush toilet and say, we help to supply, you know, these two millions of our of our customers. It's a, it's a different thing. But I think, you know, the thing we're getting at is that desalination is a continuation of the mindset we've had with water for centuries, which is when we run short, we go out and look for more. And as we've you know, run out of options to build another dam or divert more from a river, we're looking more and more at desalination. What we really need to do is flip that mindset and say, we have sufficient water, we need to use it more wisely. And when you start to combine information technology, you know, sensors and real-time water use monitoring, those kinds of information technologies along with efficiency technologies, you begin to see that we have barely begun to tap the conservation and efficiency solutions that are there. We don't need, in most mainstream situations, to be looking at desalination yet. Um, Australia built five desalination plants during or following the millennial drought. All five of them basically sat idle for years. And so that's a stranded capital asset that required a lot of money that then needs to get repaid, right? And so the consumers will pay the capital costs of that project, whether it's useful or not. And so I think we have to be very careful 
careful about that and really look at conservation and efficiency, not just as a response to drought, but as a long-term water strategy. And that's a very big difference. And when we start to do that, we begin to see that desalination is, is, is expensive, it's environmentally damaging. Yes, in certain locations, certainly right now, 40, 50% of the world's desalination capacity is in the Persian Gulf region for obvious reasons. It's a okay. desert. You're all agreed on that. So uh, we, we, we'll accept that you're right on that. Jump in here for one minute. Yep. <laughs> I, I, I like your idea, really, that there is a problem with the politicians and actually the water professionals. So, yes, politicians want short-term and very quick and shiny solutions. So let me give you an example. In 2016, the World Economic Forum identified water crisis as the number one global risk. Yet in the recently signed COP21, water did not appear even once. So where is the disconnect then? How come water is not showing up any serious trade negotiations? That is where the basically disconnect is. We need to figure out really how to bring water in actual trade negotiation. We're talking about virtual water. Water is embedded in food. 85% of the water is used in agriculture. Then how come it doesn't show up in trade negotiations? Unless we can bring it at that level, this idea of water basically getting into the political scene is not going to happen. And I think, I think businesses increasingly get this. I really do. Businesses now see water as a very fundamental risk to their business uh, and their bottom lines. Mm-hmm. So I I see really that that's a rising uh, understanding. Let me finally ask you, uh, which we often do at the the end of this programme, where you think we're going to get to with this issue. So if you look, I don't know, 25 years ahead, what will be the most uh, striking aspect of the water situation then? Peter Glick. Let me start by saying that I'm typically an optimist. I actually think we're going to solve our water problems and move to what I call a soft path to sustainable water management and use. And it's going to involve technology, and it's going to involve smarter economics, and it's going to involve better management, and it's going to involve politics. It's not going to involve any single solution. But if we take the success stories that are out there, and Sandra has described some, there there are innovative farmers out there. There are all sorts of things going on. If we can scale them up, if we can restore ecosystems, if we can restore our soils, we can manage the water for the 21st century instead of, ironically enough, the 19th century. We're still 100 years behind the times with old infrastructure and old management. There is a successful way to deal with conflicts over water, to deal with shortages for water. We just have to look at what works, and we have to avoid the old-style thinking that has stymied progress in the past. Shafiqul Islam, steady progress? If I do not have rice, I can look for wheat. If I do not have coal, I can look for solar energy. If I don't have water, I will be dead in a few days. So to put it simply, I think we need to look at water as a very different kind of resource. So think about it. If I talk about food surplus from all regions of the globe and deliver it to all households with a food deficit, no one would get hungry. Yet over 800 million people remain food insecure and hungry every day. So why does this happen? The simple answer will be politics. It's a politics of redistribution. Then what is needed is a reframing of this political reality of water. So in reframing this issue of water, really access or allocation, what we need to figure out really what are the guiding principles as a global community we can adhere to. So I would say the sustainability and equity. Keep those as the guiding principle and then create local solutions. Those will be adaptive to the local conditions and given the capacity and the constant of that system that exists in that local condition. Thank you very much. And Sandra uh, Postel, let me end with you. Where do you think we'll be in a quarter of a century? 
I think, you know, if we begin to move in these more positive directions, we can have a, you know, very healthy economy side by side with healthier ecosystems. And I think the key to that is really understanding that water is fundamentally the basis of life for everything on this planet. And if we begin to manage water in that way as stewards of, of this gift, really, of the planet, then we can begin to bring nature back into this equation. You know, we have had a couple centuries now of incredible engineering, really, you know, to establish more control over water. And I think we're sort of maxing out that solution now. We're beginning to see that our best solutions and our most cost-effective solutions really involve working with nature, beginning to use the natural services of wetlands, of rivers, of floodplains. They can help us manage droughts, manage floods. And, and so I think we're going to need to see ecologists and hydrologists working more with engineers, sort of busting through those boundaries and coming up with solutions that really show that we can work in harmony with the natural processes that we've been very good at disrupting to now. And we need to flip that around. So I see a really fascinating set of solutions coming forward that will help us get to, you know, and I think we have to go beyond sustainability. If we're just talking about sustainability, we're talking about sustaining a, a situation of depletion. We need to regenerate. We need to to regenerate our rivers, regenerate our soils. And that's going to take some proactive action. But there's a lot of creativity going into this now. So I'm quite optimistic. And again, I talk about a lot of this in this book. And it was an inspiring book to write for all these reasons. Optimistic Americans, as ever. And uh, Fred Pierce, <laughs> I can see that you've written a couple of pages of notes that look absolutely <laughs> indecipherable with lots of arrows and sort of boxes and things. So what are the main, what's the main point you've got down there? Oh, no, it's very simple. We are just so bad at using water now. We've been describing for the last hour how awful we are. Managing. The flip side of that is we can do things so much better. Most of the farmers around the world irrigate their crops by simply flooding the fields and hoping some of the water gets to roots. If we have drip irrigation, when we can get the water direct to the roots, we can use, you know, only a fraction of the same amount of water. If we can do that, most of our problems will be solved. The rivers will be running again. Our groundwaters will be recharged again. So I, too, am an optimist, but only if we can stop it doing it so badly and start doing it just a sensible way. Tremendous positivity. Thank you all. Peter Glick, thank you. Fred Pierce, Shafiqul Islam and Sandra Postel. But for now, that's it. So from our excellent panel and from Owen Bennett-Jones here in London, goodbye.